TRP is a theologically progressive Baptist church in Salisbury, Maryland. This is our podcast. You don't hear many sermon series on the book of Joshua, and for good reason. The book presents modern-day readers with many complex issues, ranging from the historicity of the stories in Joshua, to the ethics of warfare, to how to reconcile the image of a violent God with Jesus' teaching. We don't claim to have all the answers, but we're going to talk about the questions. Thanks for joining us. I'm talking a little quiet right now because we're, we're here in the booth at nighttime and my kids are sleeping 10 feet down the down the lane here. Right, right down, right, right down, down the, lane. the lane. Actually, one of them's probably not sleeping, but that's all right. Okay, here's let, let's just bring y'all back behind the curtain and just, I'm just going to make a confession. It's good for the soul. That's what they say. Tess and I were in the booth Who last week. Who says that? Somebody. Confession is good for the soul? Never heard of it. Serious? I mean, I grew up Catholic, so I know that internally, but I've never heard that saying. I doubt they would have said it's good for the soul. They just would have said. You got to do it. You got to. Mm-hmm. For fear of hellfire. Damnation. Yeah. But we got in the booth last week and. Please don't whisper. Damn. <laughs> I don't like it. Too late. We got in the booth last week and we just went for it. You know, we, we, we ripped off the bandaid. We haven't been in the booth in like six months, long time. Mm-hmm. We dedicated that episode to Arthur Lembo. Mm-hmm. And then we said, you know what? The world doesn't need to hear that. No. And by we, I'm, I mean me. I said, I don't think the world we needs said, to hear that. I want to trash it. Well, because here's Thank the thing. Thank you so much. Here's the thing. The book of Joshua is what we are studying. We are doing that because I'm teaching a seminary class on Joshua. I've got a contract to write a book on Joshua. I didn't want to prepare three different things. I just wanted to, like, to f- focus in, you mm-hmm. know? So if I'm doing all this prep work for teaching seminary classes i figured i can pull a sermon out of this Mm -hmm. but the book of joshua is a nightmare on wheels cool yes um it is filled with violence and not only violence it's filled with divinely mandated violence it is filled also with big issues on historicity Mm -hmm. meaning did it happen did it not happen So you got these classic kid stories of Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho, which is sort of a misnomer because they just walk around the city a handful of times and then they blow on their shofar and do some shouting and the walls fall down. Mm -hmm. But a lot of um, scholars would say there's not a whole lot of evidence on the ground to support the biblical narrative as it's told as being something that actually happened in history so so the book has a lot of different problems right off the bat ethical problems theological problems historical problems uh so so preaching on it is is difficult and last week we got in the booth and i just sort of threw up yikes all of the things yeah and i didn't like it because it it felt overwhelming you know i'm not here to overwhelm the people with all of the with all of the things. Right. But this week you have maps. I've got I've got a book. Yeah, I've got, got a book stuff. in front of me with a map on it. 
Yep. And if there's anything that translates well, audio, audio, audiologically, audiologically, it's a map, right? And and this is I'm actually not going to go over the map, but it's it's there. So. Mm. What I want to do is refocus our time, and we're just going to go through the book of Joshua, not chapter by chapter, because that would be, that would take forever, and that would be a little bit too too bland and too boring. So we're going to hit some highlights. Last week, we talked about Joshua chapter 1, and I thought we could kind of dive in. Now, we're going to hit all of the issues that I talked about with Tessa last week in the booth that y'all will never hear, um, but they're going to come up more organically. I don't want to. I don't want to be too much too soon. You know what I mean. Maybe we could make that content available to our um, our Patreon <laughs> subscribers. Yeah, all, all of our funding, uh, the, the donors, you yep. know, the people that are financially backing this. So Arthur, if you want to write a big fat check, that's right. We will get you that special bonus footage. That's um, right. It's funny. I've actually had a handful of people that said, "Hey, I saw you post something about the podcast. Where is it?" See. See, they're out there. I told Look at you. you. Shout out, Jeff Marshall. Shout out. Shout out. All right, so this is Joshua chapter one. Now, here's the thing about Joshua. It's set within a broader context. Anytime you're looking at a book of the Bible, you kind of have to see what, what's around it, especially if you're dealing with narrative. The book of Joshua looks backwards and it looks forwards. It looks backwards to one of the preeminent characters in the entire Old Testament, Moses, mm-hmm. right? So the, the Pentateuch which is the first five books of the Bible, otherwise known as the Torah or the books of Moses. Um, That story focuses on land acquisition. It focuses on God promising the people land. However, all throughout the Pentateuch, they don't get there. It's like this promise that never comes to fruition and never comes to pass. And at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is dying. He's giving his last lecture, so to speak. Joshua is tapped on the shoulder to be the guy to lead the people into the land that Moses never led them into for a handful of reasons, his own sinfulness and the people's sinfulness. I think rebellion might be a better word there. Um, They did certain things that disallowed them from entering into the promised land. And now we enter into Joshua, which is looking back to Moses saying he was the guy and he left big shoes for the leader of this people to fill. And there's this underlying question that begins the book, namely, will Joshua live up to the mantle that Moses has established? Mm Mm-hmm. We know the end of the story. Yeah. I assume. Although, I mean, in your experience, do you hear many sermons on Joshua? No. And and you're not a Sunday school person, so you didn't get the kids singing Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho and No, we didn't you sing. Didn't, you didn't get the the really cool um hey kids, let's gather around the magic carpet and talk about Rahab the prostitute, maybe having sex with some spies. No. Okay, I I overplayed that one a bit. There is a lot of sexually suggestive language in Joshua chapter two uh, around the spies going to Rahab's house, but some commentators really want to sort of put this forward. They didn't have sex with Rahab, okay? So just a spoiler for, for next week. But if you don't have that background, Joshua is probably not a book that's going to get preached on because of all of the aforementioned difficulties that I've already talked about, the ethical issues, the theological issues, the historical issues. 
but hopefully we know where it sits. It looks back to the Pentateuch. It's getting ready to bring the people who are on the edge of the Jordan River across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. They're currently sitting on the eastern edge, and they're looking to go west into the Promised Land. The book begins like this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses's assistant, saying, so right off the bat, it's sort of like Moses is here. And for those of you who can't see me, which is all of you except for Tessa, I've got my hand up real high. Moses is here. Yep. And Joshua is not. He's lower. Moses is the servant of the Lord. That's the title given to him. And Joshua is the assistant to the servant of the Lord. I'm really get, trying to get mileage out of that Dwight office. Dwight Schrute. The Dwight Schrute, Michael Scott office reference here. Yeah. That's how Joshua seems to be portrayed. He's the assistant to the top dog, Moses, the servant of the Lord. And that question is, can Joshua become this person? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the authors of Joshua make that question go away real fast. If you just read through the book, there's all sorts of things that Joshua does that are Moses-like things. Now, this is an argument that some people would make to support the notion that Joshua is less of a historical figure, or at least they would say, Because of all of these similarities between Joshua and Moses, we can't say a whole lot about the historical figure of Joshua. And let me me explain this. So in the the first handful of chapters, and, and really all throughout the book, but it's sort of concentrated here in the beginning, Joshua does all of these Moses-like things. I've already mentioned in chapter two, he sends out some spies. The spies go into Jericho. They kind of scout the the land. Well, they're supposed to. They don't. They go to the prostitute's house, and within the course of one verse, they get found out by the king. The king sends some messengers saying, hey, we saw some Israelites showing up, and that's not good. So these spies are, are terrible. But Moses, back in the Pentateuch, had also sent out spies, two of which were Joshua and Caleb. So Joshua himself was a spy at one point, and now Joshua is doing the same things that Moses is doing by sending spies into the land to sort of case the joint. In the next chapter, Joshua leads the people over the the Jordan River, or maybe better, through the Jordan River. It's sort of this miraculous river crossing, which is pretty much a... Sounds familiar. It sounds familiar. Because uh, Moses led the people through the Red Sea on dry ground. And now Joshua has these uh, priests going out, holding the Ark of the Covenant, and the, le- and the river dries up and they pass through on, on dry land. So that's another Moses-like thing that happens in the first few chapters. There's this um, story later on where a guy named Achan takes some things from clay Jericho. Aiken. It's not Clay Aiken. It, oh. it could... It could be, mm-hmm. but it's not. Okay. Okay. Got it. Um, Just wanted to clear that up yeah, for that, the people. They were probably wondering. Um, they had been given instructions not to take anything from Jericho. Achan takes some stuff and he hides it, and that doesn't go well for the people. They end up fighting in this battle and they get slaughtered, and it's because of Achan's sinfulness. And Joshua has to sort of intercede for 
Achan and the people, um, much like Moses, had interceded for the people around the golden calf episode in Exodus chapter 32. There's this other weird story where it says that Joshua has to like point his sword or hold his hands up and the battle will be theirs. And that's like Moses way back when holding up his hands and the battle would be theirs. Um, or at the end of the book, when Joshua is sort of leading this covenant renewal ceremony, very similar to Moses leading this covenant renewal ceremony at the end of his life. So you've got all of these Joshua doing Moses-like things, which leads some scholars to say the story has been, big word here, Tess, are you ready? The story has been shaped. Shaped is a big word. When I say that, does that mean the anything to you? The meaning is big. The word itself is not. That's true. That's true. Yes. The authors, I hate what you're doing with your hands right now. I'm doing like a, like if you're just like, giving somebody a nice neck massage. Yeah, I don't like it. Just kneading, um, kneading the dough. <laughs> that's, okay. The neck dough. Okay, yeah. you talk now. Um, I wouldn't have used kneading the dough as a, Mm-mm. it's more like you're... Um, Shaping the shaping the dough, shaping the loaf. Yes, this is not helping the people making pretzels. <laughs> okay, so no, the authors are t- choosing how they tell the story. Yeah, almost like they're they're manipulating the traditions to make this character look a lot like Moses. And it's more than just a perspective thing. Tell me more on that sentence. Like every story has a perspective. Yeah. So naturally someone who's writing would have a perspective, but it's more than that. They're pulling in other stuff. Uh, yeah. Intentionally. At least, and at least for some scholars, they'd say that makes these stories seem less likely to be true. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, 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 I'm, I'm withholding judgment on that conversation, mm-hmm. but at least for some people, they'd come along and say, ah, yeah, we, I don't know what we can tell about the historical Joshua, because his story looks a lot like Moses's story. Honestly, if you talk to most Old Testament scholars, they would say Moses and Joshua, from a historical standpoint, don't have a lot going for them. Like there's no... Like they weren't real people or like the things that... There's no way to put their stories like on pre-existing historical hooks okay let me unpack that so they don't fit into the history that they know to be historical (laughs) they don't that's (laughs) so that's the problem they don't know the historical that they need to be historical oh boy (laughs) They, they don't know any of that okay right there's one thing that we have for so it's all just guessing. Ah, yes. Okay, of. I thought we weren't going to scare this people. Heretical? But here we are. No, <laughs> it isn't. Um, some people might struggle with it, and I don't mean people listening ne- necessarily, but e- even my students right now, they're struggling with some of these concepts because you kind of go into the Bible and you read it as a historical book. Mm-hmm. Good grief. Th- th- within our English Bibles, Joshua begins what is called the historical books in our canon. Mm-hmm. So for us, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 
First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah, they all kind of retell the history of Israel and Judah. So the lens that we bring to the reading of those stories right off the bat is, oh, this is history because the title at the top of my study Bible says I'm entering the historical books mm-hmm. now. So we sort of put unfair expectations onto the story and what it's supposed to be doing, namely giving us objective historical reporting, mm-hmm. which is which is not how ancient authors would have thought of like so shaping their stories and traditions and kind of moving things around and trying to tell the story in the way that they want to that was fair game this is this is jesus um like we have four gospels Mm -hmm. three of them are similar matthew mark and luke john is crazy Mm -hmm. but even the, the three that are similar they aren't exactly the same so Luke, for example, has shaped, I'm doing some more neck massaging. Yep. Luke has shaped his story of Jesus to be told in a certain way for a certain theological purpose, uh, to create a certain like rhetorical effect. Like, so Luke is all about justice. So he takes this sermon that Jesus preaches in Nazareth. It's called the, the Nazareth sermon, um, very appropriately titled. Mm-hmm. Where Jesus, good job on that one. Yeah, Jesus is like, I'm, I, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor and to release the captives from their chains and, you know, declare the Lord is here. That's a really bad butchering, but it's sort of like this. He's gonna do things for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed and allow them to experience freedom and life and hope and all of these good things. And Luke is taking that sermon which for mark and matthew is buried in the story of jesus and has plucked it and has put it in the beginning now the difference between the the jesus stuff that i'm talking about here and the joshua stuff over there is there are some things to root jesus in history but in the old testament i'm going to say something then tess i want to hear what your thoughts in the old testament Anything prior to the time of David, there's not much help, meaning there's not a whole lot of archaeological evidence to support stuff. And some of that is just, um, you know, the fact that you have a a group of people wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. Mm Mm-hmm. But still, people would say you'd expect to find something, especially if it's, as the Bible would say, 2.5 million. It's it's equivalent to the entire... uh, population of Baltimore Hmm. cruising around in the wilderness for 40 years and not leaving a trace. And I know that like when you go into a national park, you know, the rule is leave no trace. And, and I guess they did that, but you got nothing there. You've got no textual evidence outside of the Bible about the things that are happening prior to the time of the Davidic monarchy. And even the Davidic monarchy is scant evidence outside of the Bible. You know, mm-hmm. how does that sit with you and maybe crawl into the head of someone who hasn't been hanging out with, with me and TRP for the last eight years or so? 
Um, yeah. Well, I was going to say it doesn't really bother me anymore, but I think that it sort of feels like the rug being pulled out from you for some, when you first hear about maybe the lack of historicity in... Or at least the lack of the the evidence. The evidence, archaeological. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, I should add here too, and sometimes the uh, contradictory evidence. So for like the Jericho episode, there, there are archaeological remains, but everything that does remain the overwhelming majority of scholars have said this stuff is earlier than a Joshua figure would have been on the scene. So if there was a Joshua figure leading people to march around a city, it would have been an unwalled and uninhabited city. Which, what is that? What's an uninhabited city? No one lived there. I know what uninhabited means, but I mean, what is a city if there are no people? Oh yeah, that's good. That's good. That's that's a better point. Um, Well, then it just, the story turns into something completely different than what, than what you have. It could be like a, just this, this procession, or it could just be demonstrative of the fact that what we have in the Bible isn't a historical retelling. It's a theological retelling. It's mm-hmm. an ideological retelling. It's a, it's a retelling about identity because, okay, here's the thing. And I didn't know how this was going to, this was going to flow into it, but what we have in Joshua chapter one and in the book as a whole, I said it looked backwards. It looks backwards from a thematic angle. Joshua becomes the new Moses, right? Because Joshua does all of the Moses-like things. Um, And even at the end of the book too, the title shifts. So Joshua is no longer the assistant to the servant of the Lord. Joshua has been promoted and now Joshua after his whole last lecture that's very Moses-like and his covenant renewal stuff that's very Moses-like, he gets the Moses title. He got what Dwight always wanted. Yeah, he yeah. gets he gets Dunder Mifflin, mm-hmm. the Scranton branch, mm-hmm. and he is promoted to servant of the Lord. Mm. Oh. So by the end of... Well, I'm back to Joshua here. <laughs> yeah. I switched. Um, so by the end of the book, the questions that we have about Joshua have been answered, and he is functioning as Moses uh, 2.0. Mm-hmm. Even though there's some texts that say there's never been a prophet like Moses, even to this day, which kind of puts you in a later time. Mm-hmm. So Moses is still number one on the on the pedestal, but Joshua has done everything within his power in the story to function as Moses 2.0. So it looks back to that thematically. Now you want to nerd out for a second? Sure. I know you do. Some people have wondered, because of the thematic ties, if Joshua was written, maybe not as a response to the Pentateuch, but as a sixth part of the Pentateuch. So you remember how like Arrested Development had, I think it was three really good seasons. It's the Sextatuch. (laughs) Close. (laughs) It's the Hexatuch. Oh, dang it. Yeah, you're close. What's the Sextatuke? There isn't one. It would be the, the, sept, the Septatuke <laughs> would, would be, be seven. seven. Actually, I think any Atuke. That's nine. Okay, who cares? Um, so you know how Arrested Development had, I think it was three really good seasons, and yes. then they took some time off, and then had that really f- stupid yes. fourth one. A lot of time <clears throat> off. 
Yeah, uh, too much. Yeah. So in this scenario, Joshua would be like, they took some time off and then they added. Mm. Although it wasn't as bad as that season of Arrested it's like a Development. Reboot. Right. So it's like, think of a limited run uh, series that has. If you loved Moses, you're going to love this guy. You're going to love the book of Joshua. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's like that. They're connected. And people back in the 1800s were really excited about looking at the Pentateuch and trying to identify its individual sources. Perhaps you have heard of our dear friend, the German critical scholar Julius Wellhausen. I have heard of him. That's excellent. And perhaps you have heard that he didn't come up with this, but he popularized this theory, Mm -hmm. synthesized it for the masses, the people, Mm -hmm. because they were all just foaming at the mouth for more source criticism. We want to know about the Bible's sources. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I will tell you. Wow. So he packaged all of the things that everybody else had been saying and then promoted this view that the Pentateuch has four distinct sources, the J source, the E source, the P source, and the D source. The J source is the Yahwist source. They're uh, Germans, so they spell Yahweh with a J. The E source, which is the Eloist source. Uh, So in the Hebrew Bible, you've got Yahweh, which is a name for God, and you've got Elohim, which is a name for God. And the Eloist source uses Elohim, for God's name, as opposed to the Yahwist, which uses Yahweh for God's name. Mm-hmm. Then you have the priestly source, and then you have um, Deuteronomy, uh, the, the Deuteronomic source. Mm-hmm. And then when people got to Joshua, they said, well, the, the themes are the same, and it actually finishes the story, because Moses doesn't lead them into the promised land. Maybe we can identify some of these same sources running through the book of Joshua. So they lumped them all together, started calling it a hexateuch, and tried to find the source material for the book of Joshua. They actually called it a hexateuch? Yeah, they did. Oh, I was making a joke. Um, there's this one German scholar named Gerhard von Rott, who uh, has a really famous article called The Problem of the Hexateuch. Oh. I forget what he said the problem was. but um, So this, this was a view that didn't last for a long time, but people linked Joshua and said it's looking back and it's tied in with the Pentateuch. Now, Tessa, you want to hear something really interesting? Always. There's another way that you can view this. Namely, Joshua is not looking back to this other stuff. Joshua is looking forward, forward. because... When I said that our English Bibles have a section called the historical books, mm-hmm. and for us, that's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings. Those are the main ones. Uh, I think people will still tack on Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. In the Hebrew Bible, they have a section of the text. It's not called the historical books. It's called the prophets. And one section within the prophets is called the former prophets, which is contrasted with the latter prophets. The former prophets are Joshua, Judges, No Ruth, Samuel, and Kings. Mm -hmm. And another German scholar named Martin Note came up with this theory that Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings is a collection that has been edited by a single editor Mm -hmm. who has brought cohesion to those books and linked them together, added some stuff to make them flow, 
um, and is reading them through the lens of the theology and the themes of the book of Deuteronomy. So he named them the Deuteronomistic History. Mm-hmm. And what that means is... A single person is So the okay, that, th- I'm glad that you said this because Notes Theory, which started this whole thing, is a, it was a very... Um, Oh, what's the word? It was brilliant. It's it's a it's a brilliant theory. Mm-hmm. But when you when you read these books, there's some problems with that idea of a single editor. But yes, originally Martin Note said one person has taken all this source material, these traditions, brought them together. He wasn't saying that this person wrote Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. He right. said that this person was taking pre-existing material and, and it. compiling it. Think um, he's putting together a master playlist, mm-hmm. but he's also writing a few pieces of transitional music to mm-hmm. get from you know this Pearl Jam song. He's making a soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. He's, with he, some interludes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he's, he's bringing it all together. But when you read those books, there's some things that don't go together. Mm-hmm. There's tension. There's uh, disagreements. So then the theory became another guy named Frank Moore Cross said, ah, I don't think it's a single editor. I think there's at least two. One edition happened during the time of Josiah because in Second Kings there was this guy named Josiah they find the law. Um, Josiah is presented with the law. And we talked about this in the treasure trove that will never be released, <laughs> not mm-hmm. even to Arthur Lembo. And your question was, where did they find, like what? Uh-huh. And I, I, I still don't know, but we can just picture like a closet somewhere mm-hmm. and a priest stumbles in and is like, hey, what's this? And he blows it off. There's a <laughs> yeah. bunch of dust. Bunch of dust. Of it. And then he unrolls the scroll and was like, oh man, this is really... It's like Indiana Jones. Yeah, this is really, this is really important. Yeah. I need to tell Josiah. Yeah. Uh, most scholars would think that that scroll is the book of Deuteronomy. Okay. Or at least significant portions of Deuteronomy because it's the law code. Takes it to Josiah and Josiah's like, oh man, we need to be doing this. Mm-hmm. And he calls, a, calls people to observe the Passover. He calls people to covenant renewal, like all the same stuff that Joshua and Moses are doing. Why did he take it to Josiah? Because he was the king. He was the guy. He was the king at the time. Okay. And this is in like... Also six, known as the king. <laughs> the guy. Like, he's like the guy. Yeah. Yeah. At six, this is 620 BC. So this is, for you history buffs out there, this mm-hmm. is before the Babylonian exile in 586. So some people would say there was the first edition of the Deuteronomistic history during the time of Josiah when things are still hopeful and the people could um, kind of turn it around and and follow Josiah's reform and become Torah observant people and everything would be hunky-dory. But then, as you know, it keeps going. Josiah dies. Uh, other kings show up. They're pretty terrible. And then the people eventually... Um, get exiled to Babylon, Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is ravaged, so on and so forth. So then Frank Moore Cross said, I bet there was a a version in Josiah's time, and then I bet there was a version afterward to sort of deal with the fallout that's happening. The point is, and I I should throw this in here too, because I know that somebody wants to know this. Other people would say 
there's probably a third edition of that too, because at the very end of Second Kings, it sort of ends on this this really ambiguous note of maybe there's some hope. So it's like Josiah reform, yes, mm-hmm. destruction, death, exile, hope. Question mark. Yeah. So you got these three different layers, and if you read through them, you can see pieces. So notes theory was sort of it. It was needed. It was needed like the dough mm. to get to a to a better reading. Needed, but, not necessary. Needed right. like shaped with a K. Mm-hmm. Now here's the Connected. point. If you read Joshua from that lens, you're looking back to Joshua. Joshua is pointing ahead mm-hmm. to exile. So in chapter one, you get this sort of stuff, which makes a whole lot more sense if you read it from, say, like Josiah and maybe even past that to Babylonian exile, and you look back and you hear this as a story that's setting the scene for Israel getting into the land when everything is good and it, it's making sense and they have clear instructions because it says this, my servant Moses is dead. This is the Lord speaking. Now proceed to cross the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the Israelites. Every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all of the land of the Hittites to the great sea in the west shall be your territory. No one shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Great. Perfect. God is is there. Everything's good. And at this point, Tessa, it's like unconditional. You don't need to do a darn thing. I got your back. I'm giving you this land. I'm taking you in. And then it, it shifts a bit. And it says, be strong and courageous for you shall Put this people in possession of the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to act in accordance with all the law that my servant Moses commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right hand or the left so that you may be successful wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it. These are very Deuteronomic themes. This is like Deuteronomy personified. Keep the law. Meditate on the law. Mm-hmm. Don't turn to the right or the left. These are like phrases that you can lift out of Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. And now here's a little interesting tidbit too. So we've already said Joshua can look back to Moses and there's parallels. Mm-hmm. Joshua is Moses 2.0. Joshua also functions, if you're reading forward through the lens of the Deuteronomistic history, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, he functions seemingly as a, here's some big fancy talk, a prototype for Josiah. Because that same language, don't turn from the law to the right or to the left, meditate on it. Uh, you know, keep the law. That's all Josiah language that he also uses around the idea of the law. You also have, and this is really super weird, in um, 
Joshua 4-ish before they go into Jericho to wage war, Joshua calls for the people to observe the Passover. The only other time in the Deuteronomistic history where people are observing the Passover is during the reign of Josiah after he's presented with the law and after he calls for a reform. So if you're way back on you know in the the seventh or sixth century in Josiah or the time of the Babylonian exile and you're looking back at Joshua he really starts to look not just like a new Moses figure but he starts to look like the prototype for what a good Torah observant king would look like and that is Josiah Hmm. that makes sense Mm -hmm. so there's all these layers about how the book is functioning and how it relates to the stuff around it. Would you say then that Joshua is a less lesser character than either Josiah or Josiah and Moses? Or Definitely you... Moses. Okay. Um, Not necessarily Josiah. Especially like it just in, in Jewish tradition, Moses is the guy. Right. I don't know. I don't know how to rank the, uh, I don't know how to rank Joshua and Josiah. I mean, Josiah called the reform in, in the 620s, and it was a big moment because it was almost like breathing life back into Judah. In the story, at least, like the writing on the wall was, y'all are going to die. Mm-hmm. This is not going to go well. And he kind of writes the ship for a brief moment in time. And then it all goes bad. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how how Josiah is viewed within Jewish interpretive history but also, I mean, it doesn't seem like Joshua is really viewed that highly in Jewish interpretive history either. Not a whole lot of people are thinking about this story or caring about this story. Like, it's not something that the the Old Testament often will comment on itself, meaning they talk about the, the Exodus all over the place, mm-hmm. not just in the book of Exodus, but you got all these other authors looking back to the Exodus as this watershed moment, but not a lot of people are looking back to Joshua. So I don't know. I don't know how that ranks, but it's at least saying if you're looking at um, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, I've, I've been telling this story here recently because I think it kind of works. When you watch Breaking Bad, Walter White is a certain type of character in season one, mm-hmm. and he's very different character. I forget mm-hmm. it was season five, five or six. I don't remember. But... Whatever that last season is, like he's a he's a completely different human. Or um, Ozark, the wife. I forget her name. I need to catch up on Ozark. Yeah, it's a good yeah, show. I know. But season one wife to series finale wife. Mm-hmm. Big difference. So Joshua is sort of like the season one picture of Israel and their leaders. And then you got the the people on the back half and you can't really view them without thinking about the beginning when everything was good and they were going into the land. This is also sort of a commentary on the, the battles that follow. Like they're killing everybody in sight. The, the way the text seems to read is like they're very successful Nobody is really putting up 
much of a, you know, they have no problem going into the land. And I understand the ethical issues there, but just hear it from like a more of a, an ideological story sort of standpoint. It's easy and it's good. And you know that all you have to do is follow the Torah. And then at the end, after years and years and years of not following the Torah and ending up in exile, you can see how that initial season, if you will, sets the stage for the catastrophes towards the end. None of which, none of this, zero of of any of this mm-hmm. is stuff that's talked about in church. Right. All right, friends. I'd Until like, now. <laughs> I, I'd like for you to open up your uh, intro to the Hebrew Bible by John Collins and turn to page 47. We'll be looking at the work of Martin Note today. You know, like, yeah, and I don't, they don't do that. They definitely don't do that. And the stories of Joshua become reduced to Sunday school stories that for some odd reason we tell our children Mm -hmm. that are horrific. Yeah. Um, which, okay. We should pause there and say for privileged white elitist hippie liberal hipsters oh boy that's a lot of labels that's a lot it's horrific yeah but within the history of interpretation you've got joshua being used by um american slaves like it the joshua fit the battle of jericho is a slave spiritual mm-hmm. that gave an oppressed people hope mm-hmm. because of what was on the page you know so it's just it's it's a very interest. It has a very interesting dynamic of how it's been used and how people are approaching it and what people think of it. And I, I don't really know what to to do with that. But what I'm saying right here, trying to set the historical stage and put it in its, um, the fancy word would be in its canonical place, like putting Joshua in the Old Testament, is. Tough work, one, and two, I don't know what sort of immediate life application you might receive from anything that I've just said. Right. Yes. (laughs) Welcome to TRP. (laughs) So still trying to grapple with that. However, I do think it's important to think about these stories as they're not meant to be read, but maybe as they were read at one point. Mm-hmm. So if we have to spend some time wrestling with some concepts like the Deuteronomistic history and thinking about those books that are telling a story, I think that's, I think that's important. I'll tack this in here too, and I don't know if it really fits. Um, and we'll probably wrap it up with this. Chronicles is not part of the Deuteronomistic history and for most of us, when we get through Samuel and Kings and we turn the page and we go into Chronicles, we think, oh, this is just a this is just you another retelling. Mm-hmm. So you probably skip it. Mm-hmm. And what you miss there is another example of a shaped history. That 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 book is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. It's not the last book that was written that became part of the Hebrew Bible, but it's the last book of the Hebrew Bible. It's separated from 
from Samuel and Kings, it's told in a very different way to a different people at a different time for a different purpose. It starts with nine chapters of genealogy because the audience is an exilic community who's wondering if God still loves them. Wondering if they're still a part of the covenant community. So the author says, here's nine chapters of where we've come from. And we're still, it goes all the way back to Adam, which is crazy. But it's saying like, we are still these people. There should be an intro that says that. So you can just read that. Because like, in order to get something from that book, you have to know a lot about what's each of the okay, people, yeah, right? Yeah. So, like, in order, the only reason why I'm saying what I just said is because Pete Enns said right. that to me in my Old Testament introduction class in 2004. Mm-hmm. So it's like you have to be in the room with the with the people who have thought about right. Martin Note and Julius Wellhausen and these ridiculous German scholars, and also hopefully more diverse voices who aren't just dead white Germans. Right. But like, it's not until you get something peeled back and you're forced to think different things. It's so along those lines, same thing. First time I read Phyllis Tribble, who is a feminist um, Hebrew Bible scholar. And the way that she was reading, she has a, a famous book called The Texts of Terror. And she's reading these stories about, uh, Man, there's just horrific stories of women in the Hebrew Bible. And I didn't have that that sort of lens through which to view these stories because I'm not a woman, for one. And for two, like, I just wasn't thoughtful about it. But now that she's in the back of my head, I can't not see that. So, like, Pete's in the back of my head. Phyllis Tribble's in the back of my head. Then you throw in, like, so, like some womanist scholars who are reading through the lens of, like, black women Mm -hmm. so they it's not just feminist criticism it's it's um it's a it's a woman-centric reading from the perspective of historically oppressed peoples which is a totally different lens right so you have all these people that are adding textures to how you're approaching the bible which I think is really important work. And this is one of the reasons why I didn't want to post the, the thing that we talked about last week because I kind of got into this because at the end of the day, I don't know what to do with that. Right. It seems like there's two schools of thought. One school of thought is give the people something warm and fuzzy and something hopeful because life is hard. And I get that. But then there's that other part of, I wonder if a Sunday sermon can be part of the peeling back a layer to get people to think about the Bible in different ways. Mm-hmm. And maybe even just starting to see, well, maybe uh, like that that category of historical books might not be the best way to approach what's in this text. And then give them tools to unpack what that would look like. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, 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 there, so Jericho was an unwalled, uninhabited city at right. the time of this theoretical figure named Joshua. So what's the story doing there? Mm-hmm. What's it trying to say about the people, about the land, about God? That to me is a much more interesting question than, oh, look how cool God is. He killed everybody. You know, that's a terrible reading. Yeah. 
Look out, look out, look at this miracle. Look how powerful God is. Everybody but Rahab and her family. Oh, that's so awesome. God's good. We serve that same God. Yeah. Or if you're looking at it through the lens of VeggieTales, like, look at all those Slurpees. Those Slurpees that were chucked down on the people. You ever seen VeggieTales? I have, but I don't think I saw that one. Okay. I didn't know if that was like your your Catholicism led you down a not watching Christian cartoon uh, path, which I think would be commendable <laughs> because it's probably not the best thing to approach Joshua with the... I think they're French peas that are yeah. throwing Slurpees off the top of the the walls. Yeah, little berets. Very bizarre. Yeah. I don't know what we're doing half the time. No, that's okay. So, okay. Um, we don't have to ask those questions because this isn't church and this isn't a sermon. This is a podcast and right. I am trying to peel back some layers for you so you can think about the book of Joshua in new and exciting ways. And if this is your first entry point into this, and this is the first time you've heard somebody say to you, there's a lot of people who don't think this story actually happened historically as it's written in scripture, then I want to let you know um, that we will do whatever we can in our power to come alongside of you and give you space to process that and give you some things to read or think through and to let you know, and Tessa, you can you can jump on this one at the end, to let you know it might be the case that if you move past some of those older readings and interpretations that you accepted without much thought, you might find that there's some some life on the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once you get, it's almost, it's almost like getting the, whether it happened or not, out of the way. Like, Pat, getting past that, it's, because that's not the point most of the time. Now here, here is where people usually go. If you, if, if what, this didn't it, happen. Yeah, that's exactly What else it. didn't happen? Right. If you're saying that this is a fabricated story or a, a, a myth or something that's sort of speaking to the identity of the people that maybe didn't happen in, in this way, then how do we know? I mean, it could be anything. Right. And here's something I would, I would tell you to put in your back pocket. What we do with Joshua is dependent upon what Joshua is saying, who Joshua is written for, how it's functioning. Like it's book specific. It's text specific. So if I say Joshua and the Battle of Jericho probably didn't happen historically for these three or four reasons, that has no bearing on the historicity of any other story. Mm-hmm. Like, we'll let just that be its own thing, and then we can unpack the others as we go. So if you immediately go to, well, how do I know that Jesus, you know, fill in the blank. Well, you let Jesus be Jesus, and you let those texts be those texts, and we can figure out reading strategies to try to see what they're saying and how to make sense of them in their context mm-hmm. in a way that respects them. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to paint anything with a broad brush. No. You can't paint the whole book the same. 
not not even close. Uh, mm-hmm. And sometimes I don't know if what you were saying book you meant Bible. I mean Bible. Okay, well you can even so Genesis yeah. for example. Um, I have my own reservations on on the historicity of a lot of genesis but most scholars would say that genesis 1 through 11 is very different than 12 through 50. so 1 through 11 you've got the creation stories plural you've got um, cain and abel you've got the flood narrative you've got the tower of babel like you've got these sort and they read more mythic mm-hmm. than the story of the ancestors abraham isaac and jacob they read different mm-hmm. So you have to kind of come up with dual strategies, one for chapters one through 11. What's that? What What are these things doing? How do we think about them? And then 12 through 50. All right, so what are, now what are these doing? You know, so even if I would say, uh, you know, I'm going to maybe not put all the historical eggs into that basket. I'm doing that for different reasons, and I'm developing reading strategies for both of those. So if your first gut level reaction is, oh man, this is really problematic because if this didn't happen, then how do I know? I would just say pump the brakes and let's just stay here and focus on this for a moment Mm -hmm. and see what sort of, um, first of all, what sort of evidences I'm talking about, uh, what sort of reading strategies might be helpful or not helpful for for Joshua and then just be in in that moment before we then go into full freak out mode and say, what about... Because mm-hmm. those those texts were written so much later. I would say at least six hundred years later, conservatively speaking, different languages, different people, different purposes, different theologies. So treat them with the respect that they deserve. Which sadly, I think, is also not something that we do most often on Sunday mornings. Mm-hmm. we've got our leather bound Bibles and we treat it as one book that fell from heaven at one time. Mm-hmm. And it's just not that. Okay. So here we go. Joshua points back thematically to Moses points forward. I think to Josiah, mm-hmm. it's set probably within something called the Deuteronomistic history. So Joshua judges Samuel and Kings all kind of go together and they've been, molded by editors plural who are trying to bring this collection together they've they've brought this master playlist they've shaped a bunch of traditions to tell the story in in a unique and inspiring way for the people and that is where we set joshua and that's the sort of stuff that we'll be looking for now next week we're going to talk about uh we're just going to get down and dirty with the story of Rahab and the two spies. It's going to be less of a, did it happen? Did it not happen? Who cares? Let's just look at the story itself and celebrate it for how funny it is. That story is hysterical. Hilarious. Hilarious. <laughs> it's also very poignant and it's, it's worth spending some time with. It'll be a lens into a, a weird world that we no longer have much contact with. So next week, Rahab. Final words from Tessa. Be strong and courageous. Only be strong and courageous. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Okay, people. We'll see you later. Bye.